On a dark desert highway, cool wind in our hair. Prices keep rising around us, throwing our sentiment for a scare. Our expectations are rattled. Keep investing if we dare. Our animal spirits are howling like we're caught in a snare. The speculators are speculating. The forecasters are on alert. The gains have been so good, we really don't want to get hurt. But what if there's more of this upside? If stocks keep rising, we want to take the ride. So we trim where we're heavy. We add where we're light. We check our portfolios to see where inflation might bite. We know when less is more and more is less. We know when the time is right for the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. It's windy at the top as U.S. equity markets are experiencing some turbulence of late. Strong earnings are being challenged by persistently high inflation. It's not transitory anymore. At least that's what the Fed says. But the Fed's not buying our bread and flour prices are up 5% year over year. But that's nothing compared to gas prices, which are up 50%, utility prices, which are up 28%, used car prices up 26%. This is what the other end of the V-shaped recovery looks like, and it is rattling consumers. Consumer confidence fell to a 10-year low, according to the University of Michigan's latest consumer sentiment survey, and inflation is at a 31-year high. Us spenders out there in the economy feel like it's going to be with us for a while. Inflation expectations for the next 12 months, 4.9%. And while wages are rising up nearly 9% over the past two years, Americans are quitting their jobs at record rates. 4.43 million Americans straight up quit their jobs in September, putting the so-called quits rate at 3% of all workers. That topped August's record of 2.9%. The Great Resignation is not losing any steam, and the labor market hasn't looked this attractive to job seekers ever. There are 11.2 million job openings in the U.S. labor market. That's also a record high. But workers may be thinking that the grass is always greener as they quit and look for better pay, better benefits, and more flexibility. So who's quitting? Workers in industries with demanding hours, face-to-face consumer interaction, and potential exposure to COVID. That's who. 6.6% of all workers in accommodation and food services quit their jobs in September. 5% of workers in retail jumped ship. 3.5% quit in education and health services. And another 3.5% in transportation and warehousing. They are quitting just as retailers try to hire up to 650,000 seasonal workers to meet the demand crush everyone is expecting for the holiday season. Side note, 29,000 robots were ordered by U.S. companies last month to work in warehouses. That's also a record high. I've just about had enough of you. Be malfunctioning within a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. Take it easy, C-3PO. Leave R2 alone. While consumer sentiment is wavering, investor sentiment remains ebullient. The Risk Appetite Index from IHS Markets Investment Manager Index Monthly Survey, which is based on data from around 100 institutional investors each month, rose from 0.7% in October to 0.36% in November. That's the highest level since April of 2021, when it was plus 54%. That risk appetite is turning into some serious speculation in the options market. According to Sentiment Trader, 53% of the options volume are on buying calls to open. Those are bets that the market will keep rising into the end of the year. That's the fourth highest reading since January of 2000, right after the crash of 1999. At the same time, big executives are taking money off the table. Elon Musk sold $6.9 billion worth of Tesla stock last week. Jeff Bezos cashed in $3.3 billion worth of Amazon shares. And Adam Aaron, the so-called silverback ape and CEO of AMC Entertainment we told you about last week, he sold $25 million worth of his AMC holdings last week. 
The boss needs to get paid, but is this a sign that executives think the best of times are behind us? And breaking up is not so hard to do anymore. Johnson & Johnson announced last week that it is splitting its consumer and medical device manufacturing businesses into two separate units. General Electric announced it will split into three much smaller publicly traded companies, with GE Healthcare spinning off in early 2023, while GE's divisions that make renewable energy and fossil fuel power equipment will be formed into a single entity in 2024. That will leave GE Aviation, which makes and services jet engines, as the last big operation to remain within the company. Japan's Toshiba announced last Friday it plans to break into three separate companies by spinning off its two core businesses, its energy infrastructure business, as well as its device storage business. Keep in mind that companies usually do this when they think they're being undervalued or they think that the key to unlocking growth is to cut the weight of their legacy divisions while raising money for their fastest-growing businesses by turning them into individual, standalone stocks. And keep an eye on gold prices. They're up 5% this month. The old safety trade is back in style amid soaring inflation and stocks dancing around record highs. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Retail sales and earnings from major retailers will be in focus this week. On Tuesday, Walmart will report results. Target and TJX will follow on Wednesday, with Ross Stores, Macy's, Kohl's, and BJ's on Thursday. They are likely to have gotten a boost from preemptive buying as consumers stock up ahead of the holiday season on worries about supplies and delays. U.S. retail sales, which will be released by the Census Bureau on Tuesday, are forecasted to have risen 0.7% in October, with holiday sales projected to rise 8.5% to 10% this year. But if consumers are feeling as skittish as sentiment surveys tell us, October may have been the month that they blinked, which could set off a domino effect within the fragile U.S. economy. Don't forget, consumer spending makes up 70% of U.S. gross domestic product. Oh, sweet charity. I was in that musical in high school. Chinese e-commerce giants Alibaba and JD.com are expected to report a slump in sales when they release their quarterly reports this week after regulatory changes in China impacted their advertising practices and restrictions on vendors. Baidu will report results on Wednesday, and believe it or not, Chinese interstocks are clawing their way back out of a bear market. The Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF has fallen 32.4% this year, but it bounced back by 8% last week as some investors think the restrictions are finally starting to ease in China. How's that red-hot U.S. housing market? Well, the National Association of Home Builders will release its housing market index on Tuesday, and the Census Bureau will follow on Wednesday with U.S. housing starts and building permits. Housing starts are projected to have risen 2.3% last month after falling 1.6% in September amid higher costs for building materials, supply constraints, and labor shortages that have kept home prices elevated. On the geopolitical front, U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping are expected to hold a virtual summit this week. China tacitly agreed to some of the climate change reduction measures proposed during the COP26 summit in Glasgow last week. China and the U.S., the world's two biggest CO2 emitters, pledged to act in a joint declaration saying, quote, they recall their firm commitment to work together, unquote, to achieve the 1.5 Celsius temperature goal set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement. They called for stepped-up efforts to close the, quote, significant gap that remains to achieve that target. President Biden will sign the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill today. $550 billion of that is new spending. And now the battle really begins to pass the $1.8 trillion Build Back Better plan. 
Out of the ashes of the great financial crisis came a new breed of online investing platforms designed to deliver customization, personalization, and user-friendly interfaces that put the customer in the driver's seat of their financial futures. Betterment was one of them, and while many others either failed to accelerate or were gobbled up by legacy money management giants, Betterment took the organic route, growing on its own, adding features, adding products, and adding more and more customers every year. Today, the platform has over 700,000 customers and some $32 billion in assets under management. Sarah Levy took over as CEO of the company in late 2020, just as the world was turned upside down. While we might not be right side up quite yet, Sarah is firmly on her feet at Betterment, and she joins us this week on The Express. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I've been really looking forward to this conversation since you took over. You come from the media world, having worked at Disney and then at Viacom. Did any of that prepare you for the madness of the financial services industry? Well, media has its madness too. So I would say yes. It's an interesting time to have joined the world of fintech. And, you know, when I think about what drew me to Betterment, it were a lot, it was a lot of the principles that were evident in the media business as well, which is it was a great brand that I felt had a real opportunity to meet the needs of a generation and to be, become famous in a way that it was still early enough on its journey. I think, you know, the mission of Betterment to make people's lives better is really the reason I joined the company is because I felt like that aspiration was something that that we could build on. And that is a job that's never done. And so I really like that idea. You know, the media industry is is a 24-7 news cycle, a 24-7 entertainment cycle. And I think, you know, while the markets aren't necessarily open 24-7, that is true of people's financial lives as well. Betterment's evolved from being a pure robo-advisor to being one of the first robos or digital advice providers to offer real financial advisors for clients at a certain asset threshold. And now you're partnering with companies like Zoe Financial to matchmake clients with financial advisors. All the headlines, Sarah, tell us that young investors, they don't want to talk to real human beings or inherit their parents' financial advisors. Why do you think differently at Betterment? And P.S., I don't totally agree with those headlines. Well, you know, I think there are a lot of different kind of people out there, right? And so I think when you start with the premise that we're here with a personalized financial solution for you and to give you financial peace of mind and, and financial independence over the long term, right? That's a relationship. And I think there are a lot of people who are comfortable with a digital only relationship, but there are others who, as they grow and evolve in their investing journey and in their life journey, frankly, you know, sometimes you want to talk to someone. And so our view is you get sort of the best of both worlds when you have a combination of a technology solution and and, you know, a human solution. And I would also say, as much as we are a technology for a solution that is easy to use and delightful and efficient and all those good things, there are human beings behind all the action, right? It's not just one big al- algorithm telling you what to do. So I think that's an important part of is humanizing the brand and humanizing the experience. Yeah, if you've ever been up to Betterment's offices on 23rd Street in New York City, there are lots of humans, lots of smart people doing a lot of good things and a good energy in that office for sure. The last 18 months have really tried investors from a behavioral standpoint, from a, a fear and a greed standpoint. And I've spoken a lot to Dan Egan, your, your head of behavioral investing, many times about this. But what were your observations about how Betterment clients behaved over the past 18 months? Well, you know, the good news about being a long-term investing platform is that one of the sort of core elements of our investing strategy on behalf of our customers is really about buy and hold and about a long-term view. So we saw much less 
churn, you know, during the volatile, the moments of volatility in the market than the average investment brokerage. So I think that's a good thing because I think that means our customers are, are practicing what we preach, which is sort of patience and discipline because this is the long game. We're playing the long game. But we did also notice that there was a real spotlight shown, you know, on digital investing generally. And I think part of that was was because COVID locked everyone in our houses, right? And, you know, gambling was shut down, sports was shut down. And so investing became sort of a, a place where people could candidly entertain themselves, right? And so whether it's gambling or entertainment, we could debate, but, you know, the mean stock phenomenon and all that. So what we did is... We actually interviewed, surveyed a bunch of customers and prospective customers to really understand how impactful is that behavior relative to sort of long-term buy and hold behavior. And what we found is that even those who were kind of, you know, activating that behavior in their lives, it was generally with a portion of their savings And that portion tended to be about 30%. And so that kind of gives us hope that people are still, you know, putting their safety net or their 401k or their IRA in a more kind of stable, diversified portfolio. Yeah, And just by choosing Betterment, you're choosing that route, that the marathon, so to speak. And you know what? You've done pretty well if you just kind of kept your plan in place, adjusted when you needed to, and you have those technological nudges that if people sort of get out of the lane, you let them know. So that's kind of the magic of, of what these robo-advisors do. And a lot of people put a lot of money into Betterment. Assets under management swelled by some $10 billion or 53% over the 12 months uh, that ended in back in March. You added a bunch of new clients, tens of thousands, up 116% this year. You've got $32 billion under management. People were putting money into their accounts hand over fist, weren't they? Yes, they were. Your, your stats are right on. Thank you for that. You know, the, the other interesting thing I would say is that tax loss harvesting and sort of what technology can do by way of saving for taxes in volatile markets, that's actually even more valuable to the end customer, right? And and so that's, you know, another part of, of what happened in the downturn is actually the platform traded, you know, more algorithmically than, than when the, when you have a bull market. And that creates real value for customers that you can't really get in the same way with a human being. Yeah, I think a lot of people learned for the first time that if they got into the market and they started trading stocks and buying and then selling in their gains, they got a pretty fat tax bill or they're going to have to pay one. But when you you choose this route, it obviously does it for you. So there's a reason There's a reason these exist. Betterment's added 401ks. You've added cash management services like checking and savings account. You've added SaaS products. You've come a long way from just offering ETFs and tax loss harvesting. What are you missing? What would you like to see on the platform? Well, when I think about the millennial generation, which is really our core demographic, what they're looking for is a more personalized experience. And so when you think, you know, back a decade ago, when my predecessor, John Stein, founded the business, he introduced something that at the time was breakthrough, which was around ease of use and low cost and great tax smart tools. But I think as we stand a decade later, those become table stakes. And and the question becomes, okay, I know I can get great performance, but what if I want, what if I have a different vision for my own investing portfolio and I want to have a little more agency? So what we're doing, without losing any of that ease of use and simplicity, is starting to introduce more opportunity for values alignment and for personalization for the end user. And so that started last fall with a really great introduction of socially responsible investing portfolios. And those continue to evolve. And we've got a climate portfolio. We have a socially responsible portfolio. Um, And I think those are just sort of the tip of the spear 
as we think about personalization ideas that people are looking for. You recently closed the Series F capital raise with some pretty big VC firms that brought in $160 million in capital. You, you say you intend to use that money to scale your services, especially you're moving to 401ks. Why are you focused so much on that category? So the interesting thing right now, I think there's an enormous opportunity, and, and let's come back to our mission, actually, as the place we start, right, which is making people's lives better. When you look out at Social Security, and Social Security has been a real safety net for generations, but now we see that that is going to potentially dry up or at a minimum not be a full solution, you know, as these millennials age. And so employers are increasingly becoming a part of that sort of long-term solution for their employees. And so just, you know, a statistic that that helps frame the opportunity. There are 6 million small and medium-sized businesses in this country, and 90% of them do not currently offer retirement solutions for their employees. And so as a mission-driven company who thinks about being your financial partner for the long term, this is really a bullseye for us. And I think the time is really now because there's increasing awareness and on a state level and a federal level, there are a number of regulatory tailwinds that are starting to compel companies to help their employees plan for the future. And we want to be a part of that solution. It's a lot of opportunity, it sounds like as well, what they call total addressable market there sounds pretty big. And employees seem to have the upper hand for the first time in a long time. They're demanding more from the companies they work for. So companies may be forced one way or the other to to start providing some of these services. So I completely get that. You've been around for more than a decade. Betterment, I should say, has been around for more than a decade. You got there recently, so to speak, and you just raised this F round of capital. You're moving your way up the alphabet of capital raises. When can we expect a Betterment IPO? Well, I think right now where I'm focused is really on growth. We're in a great position right now with this capital raise. I think it it both validates the past and it supports a real conviction in, in the vision for the future. And so right now where I'm really focused is on building this next leg of the stool, as we'll call it, which is really around financial wellness that starts with the 401k. And that's going to be a little bit of an investment. And coming out the other side, I think we will be much stronger as a company um, than we are today. And I would be thrilled um, for us to be a public company, but I wouldn't put a timeline on it. I got it. But you're seeing so many of these upstarts, companies that have been around five minutes compared to Betterment, getting gobbled up, getting these huge valuations. There seems to be this premium on the space that you live in. So I get, I get it that it's tempting, but if you can raise money at the rate you're raising it, why well, go public until you're ready? So I completely understand that. We've seen a lot of online brokers, new and legacy players offering crypto to their clients because they want it. That seems like a pretty volatile asset to drop into a Betterment Steady Eddie ETF heavyweight investment offering. Will you ever offer it? So we've been studying crypto. And I think we're never going to be the, the first in a new asset class. But we do think that now as, as crypto sort of passes the $3 trillion in assets here, um, we really believe this is an asset class that's here to stay. So as I think about, you know, what, what's the opportunity? Again, coming back to our core principle of diversification, we think that there is likely to be a responsible way to incorporate crypto as a buy and hold and as part of a diversified portfolio. Right? The size of that investment, I think, for an individual investor and what we would recommend as a fiduciary are some of the questions we'd like to answer before presenting an offering to our customers you know, through, through the Betterment uh, you know, user interface. 
Yeah, well, we're seeing more and more Bitcoin-related ETFs and crypto-related ETFs either being accepted or passed or, or approved, and a lot of them are on the runway. So I guess as more of those come to market, you get to evaluate those products and decide what might work, might what might not, right? That's right. And I think you know some of the value that we provide for our investors is really around evaluating those products. So what they can really know and trust is that we're not going to incorporate a product into the Betterment offering that we don't believe has value for their long-term financial future. And then we're also going to you know, package any offering with real guidance and education. And I think those those are the, the questions we want to answer before jumping into what, as you say, is sort of a, a volatile asset class. Yes, it is. Only about 3 million people, Sarah, are using robo-advisors or digital asset managers, as the industry likes to be called. Yet there's over 60 million plus retirement accounts in the US. On the one hand, you have a lot of runway in front of you. On the other, you have a pretty tall mountain to scale there. What's the most effective way for you to get there? Well, I would say two things to that. One is I think a lot of those legacy numbers are really older generations. So the good news is, you know, these younger generations, whether the millennials or now Gen Z coming up behind them are much more comfortable from day one, you know, with a digital first solution and digital first brands. And they aren't necessarily looking to their parents, financial providers to provide them with solutions. So I think there's kind of a natural growth there, which we accelerated or we saw accelerate really during the pandemic. I think for us specifically, strategically a betterment, I think that that our one-to-many strategy is one of the more interesting ways that we differentiate in the marketplace, meaning introducing customers through our 401k to our product and then helping them to plan more holistically their financial picture or bringing customers on via advisors who use our technology solution. And sometimes they stay on the advised you know, platform because they prefer a human interaction, but they still can benefit of our great, from our great technology. You come out of the media world, you're, you know, marketing well, and Betterment's always been very savvy about marketing, but I miss those Maggie Siff uh, ads from Billions, the great actress who, who plays Wendy in Billions. When are you bringing those back and what can we expect on the marketing front to get that more brand awareness out there? Excellent. Well, we don't have her on the payroll at the moment, but those were great ads. I, I would agree. So we actually are introducing a new brand look and feel. In fact, next week, Week. So you're you're right on the cusp there in November, and I think um, you will see a lot of great work, particularly in tax season. Which you know you think about the new year, and everybody's thinking about their weight and their finances. So that's a great time to introduce the world to, to the new betterment. I can't wait to see that. Take us inside, if you don't mind, your strategic plan for the next five years in 2027. What will betterment look like, and how will we experience it? I don't think we'll be in the metaverse, but, you know, never say never. I would start, I think, with the employer-led business, because I think that that's going to be the most powerful catalyst for growth for us for the next few years. I think the idea that employers need to be part of their employees' financial solutions and need to expand into financial wellness. You know, you talked about sort of the war for talent. I think that's only just beginning, right? Because I think that the new hybrid workforce allows for sort of mobility and for folks to make different choices. So I think about our challenge as how do we meet that personalized moment and really help people deliver on their dreams, whatever those dreams may be, because finance is personal and money intersects with life in every way. And so I think about that as 
meeting them at the employer, meeting them digitally, or meeting them through an advisor. However you want to come to Betterment, we will personalize tools and plans for you so that you can secure your long-term future. And that's how I think about, that's, that's the lens through which I put everything. And I think increasingly, I would only add probably mobile, which is this world is on the go like it's never been. And so I think you'll continue to see you know, advancement and innovation innovation there. Yeah, well, platform agnostic, folks want what they want, where they want it, whatever they're using. So you're you're right on the money there. It has been fascinating to watch Betterment for over a decade now grow into what it's become. And, and I really appreciate you coming on The Express. Sarah Levy, the CEO of Betterment, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Caleb, for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Joseph in Columbia, Maryland. And Joseph suggests indicative price this week. And we like that term given all the heat around the IPO market lately. Well, according to my favorite website, the indicative price is the price that a share of a company will probably sell for when it becomes available to be traded. We use the term indicative price when we're looking at the IPO market in anticipation of a company pricing its shares for the first time. Rivian, the electric vehicle maker, which had a blockbuster IPO last week, was a good example of how an indicative price could hint at which direction the stock will move once it becomes available to the public. Rivian, which is backed by Amazon and Ford, among other investors, was initially expected to price its stock between $57 and $62 before increasing that range last week to between $72 and $74 per share. Given the hot anticipation for the IPO and investor demand, the market makers offering Rivian to the public raised that price to $78 per share, which would raise $11.9 billion for the company. That made it the biggest IPO for an American firm since Facebook earned $16 billion when it went public in 2012. Rivian's IPO is the 12th largest of all time. Shares of Rivian closed out the week close to $130 per share, which shows that the indicative price of $78 per share way underestimated the investor demand for the stock. Good suggestion, Joseph. You'll be getting a pair of the midnight blue and black Investopedia socks for your next out night dancing at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in charming old Columbia, Maryland. We're going to let the late Jack Welsh take us out this week. Jack led General Electric as chairman and CEO from 1981 to 2001, and he built one of the companies that created the light bulb into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate spanning aircraft engines, power appliances, television networks, and financial services, among other businesses. As we said earlier, General Electric announced last week it would split into three separately traded companies in the next few years, effectively dismantling the house that Welsh built some 20 years after he stepped down. Here's Welsh in 2010, addressing GE shareholders for the last time, talking about having the capacity to change. Always be thinking change is good. Don't stay up all night worrying about predicting it exactly right. Change is not bad. It creates an opportunity every second. Not a crisis. Jump all over it. Show the leadership so your organizations aren't paralyzed by it. Organizations can get scared by it. Make the change an energizing, exciting event. Relish it. Embrace change and run towards it with enthusiasm. Good advice, Jack. We'll take that with us this week, and we'll talk with you again a little further on down the line. <music>